0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And open your Bible to Psalm 33. We'll read it. Are you still enjoying going through the Psalms? I know. I'm, I'm still back here in the early Psalms. We're up to, what's uh, 75 or so, right? Is everybody, is everybody caught up reading through this? But uh, here's a great one. Uh, and we, Let's just go ahead and start reading in verse 1. Psalm 33. One, wait a second. I was going to emphasize something Pastor Mike said. Uh, might have been the men's conference. Probably was the men's conference. If you're going to that thing, please, please, please. Sign up for it. Go, go ahead and register. I think you can pay at the door, but go ahead and register so they can prepare the uh, right amount of food. And maybe you're not going to eat because as uh, once again, it's during the fast, but anyway, um, Psalm 33 verse one, "Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for the praise. For praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him. With an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them. By the breath of his mouth he gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up deep in storehouses, lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of of his heart to all generations Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the, from the place of his dwelling he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. From our heart, For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Great, great psalm. And it starts there, the first few verses, with an exhortation, even a command to rejoice, to praise the Lord, to worship Him, to play instruments, to sing, shout. And then goes into a description of the things that ought to motivate us to sing His praises, to worship His name, to do these things energetically and willingly uh, from, from 6 to 11, it talks about his power. By the word of the Lord. By the word, by his very word, the heavens were made, and all the host of them, the stars and everything else. Uh, by the breath of his mouth, he's the one who created the oceans and uh, the, lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. And all these verses, of course, emphasize his great power, his sovereignty over all of creation. So sing his praises, play to him, sing to him, shout to him. Look at what a great God he is. He spoke the universe into existence and then says in verse 12, blessed is the nation, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And we're going to come back to that. But the way this is expressed here is we've, here's what I've just described this great God that I'm urging you to praise, and he's our God. Talking about Old Testament Israel. This is probably David who wrote this. We don't know for sure. Uh, but all these other nations had their own gods, and they were no gods at all. And they, here they were, Israel, chosen by God, and their God is the one who spoke the universe into existence. So of course they're blessed. Of course they're blessed. And again, we'll come back to 12. That's kind of kind of be the centerpiece of the message tonight. And I've been—I was requested to go short tonight, so I will. So you have not, you ask not. At least I, 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 th- I think it'll be short tonight. And, uh, but let's, let's uh, really quickly, let me point out some things about the following uh, remaining verses, and then we'll come back to 12. In uh, 13 to 14, when the Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. There's no, there's nothing. There's nobody who escapes his notice. He sees it all. He sees all of us. In verse 15, when it says he fashions their hearts individually, he considers all their works. That's uh, that's really uh, can be has been better rendered in other translations. Uh, there's some translations uh, he uh, fashions their hearts all together or fashions their hearts alike. And all, well, all that's really saying is that all men are the same. Nobody. Uh, we're not going to evolve into something that God cannot detect. We're not going to evolve into something that's bigger than God, something that he cannot control. Uh, all men are men, and we have human hearts, and he, he knows what we are like because he made man. That's what it's saying. The, the, the danger of reading that and taking that word, he fashions their hearts individually is that would kind of ascribe all of our personality defects and even the evil in our hearts. Well, that's the way God made me. And that's not at all what this verse is saying. You can study that out yourself. He considers all their works. Really, a better translation of that is he understands all their works. If you, and that might be a minor... Uh, Distinction, But if it, he considers all their works, again, it's, it's, it raises the specter of weighing our good deeds against our bad deeds and rewarding us according to our goodness and not his mercy. Uh, and then, of course, going on to say in uh, 16 and 17, no matter how strong, how big, how well-equipped your army is, if God is against you, it's all in vain. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of uh, hope because, verse 18 and 19, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is our source. Uh, and, and his giving of those things might manifest itself in, in things that, unfortunately, you know, David was a blessed man. He was a blessed king. And he... Uh, One of the manifestations of his uh, blessedness was he was very rich. He also had a big army. Uh, But he really wasn't supposed to build such a great army. He had a large army, and it's like, because of God's mercy, I don't think God punished him for that. But when he went out and counted them, you remember the census? The census was to determine how many uh, men of military age there were in the nation. He was basically measuring his army. And that's when God said no, and, the, and a plague came on the land because David was becoming perilously close to depending, to leaning on the arm of the flesh. Uh, we're going to continue to win these great victories. We're going to keep our borders secure because we have this great army. Uh, and then, you're, again, you move one step closer to forgetting that it's God who did all that work in the first place. Uh, and the same thing. I, I, again, I'm convinced that uh, the reason more of us don't see the manifestation of the prosperity that I believe God desires for us to have, that the Word tells us He wants us to have, is because an awful lot of us would suddenly stop trusting in God for our provision if we had a mountain of money in the bank. Suddenly that would become our security. So, anyway, uh, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. Uh, He's the one who will deliver our soul from death. And then, uh, I like the way it wraps up in verse 22. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. At the end of the day, even though it starts out with this, uh, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. uh, For praise from the upright is beautiful. And we know that David put a premium on uh, paths of righteousness. We talked about that not too long ago. But David, above all, and, and this psalmist, whether it was David or not, Uh, clearly strikes the right tone here. At the end of the day, it's God's mercy that we hope in. It's certainly not our righteousness. If we have to stand before God and say, I am secure because you're a good God, and you are good to those who walk in your ways perfectly, uh, then I I don't know about you, but I'm shot. Okay? Because I haven't and I don't. I strive and I grow, but I don't walk in his ways perfectly. It's his mercy that keeps me alive from day to day. And really, you too. Now, back to this verse, uh, in verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Again, the first meaning David clearly means uh, is that it's Israel. This is what he means. We are blessed. We are the nation that God chose. We're the nation that God created. Uh, to work his covenant through mankind and look at at how blessed we are. This is our God. Our God, not any other nation's God, is the one who spoke the universe into existence and we can trust in his power, his protection, his provision, everything. The, The next application of that verse would be, if any other nation would place their trust in the Lord, they would be blessed. He's saying, look how blessed we are to have this great God as our God. But if you take that verse, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, any nation could make their God the Lord. This was God's desire when he placed Israel among the nations, would be that they live manifestly. This is one of my favorite themes in the Bible, and you see this uh, spelled out in Deuteronomy. I go back to it again and again. Uh, that God's desire was to see them live in his manifest blessings and to have the surrounding nations see them living in God's manifest blessings so that they would want what Israel had. And Israel just didn't have that evangelistic mindset. It's, look what God gave us, and don't you dare touch us. You stay away from us, we'll kill you, that sort of thing. And then, of course, what do they do? They slip into idolatry and start worshiping their gods. Uh, And then... The next thing I always think about when I read this verse is, what, you know, what about America? Are we a Christian nation? Are we a biblical nation? And there's no question that this nation was founded on biblical principles and that the key people uh, going back to the early days of settling this, uh, this continent uh, were here for religious freedom, the freedom to worship God, Uh, without the thumb of the king or the government or or any particular church on them. There was an article that uh, uh, Zach sent me the other day. It was actually a a, a brief article. I don't say who wrote it because I like the guy. I've been blessed by some of his stuff. But he was uh, talking about how there was a uh, courthouse somewhere where they wanted to hang a monument of the Ten Commandments which you see from time to time, and this shows up in the news from time to time. And the, some, some alliance, you know, Freedom From Religion Foundation or somebody, sued to have this thing taken down. And the church was in an uproar, or some Christian group was in an uproar, because how dare you take the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse. And, of course, there's a legitimate concern there, you know, separation of church and state. I, I, I try not to get too twisted about stuff like that, but this, the direction this author was coming from did bother me because he was saying, why do Christians want to drag people back under the Old Testament law? The Ten Commandments is Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore. We have a new and better covenant. And our command, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Why don't we have people fighting to hang that in the courthouse or in the courtrooms or things like that? Well, and to me, that's a a silly way of posing the problem because I think the reason people want it up there is to remind us, and to remind those who are in and out of the, the courthouse that our nation's laws were essentially based on the Mosaic laws, right? That, that the, the, we didn't create these laws, you know, it's, it's against the law in the United States, uh, and it's against the law in, in these individual states, to murder. But we didn't just, our founding fathers just didn't sit around a table and say, what about murder? Should we make that a law? Anybody think that's a good idea? They didn't come up with the idea that stealing was wrong, that murder was wrong. Uh... And I know there are some specific commands in the Ten Commandments that aren't enshrined in our Constitution. But that's, the, again, the whole point is, this is what our nation's laws flow from. And I get that. It's a historical, um, it's, it's a, I guess, sort of a respectful way of acknowledging the roots of our courts and our laws. Ravi Zacharias, probably his most famous argument for the existence of God, and he offers this, he, he approaches it from a number of ways, but it's usually the way he answers when somebody says, you know, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world if God is an all-powerful and all-good God? Why is there so much evil and suffering? He turns it around and says, uh, how do you define evil? Would you agree that if there is even such a thing as evil, we have to have such a thing as good so that we can differentiate differentiate between good and evil, right? And everybody agrees with that. If there's no no good, there's no evil, so we have good and evil. And if there's good and evil, there must be a standard, a moral law that sits above good and evil, and that's what we measure it against. Something has to tell us what is good and evil. In other words, if there's good and evil, there's a moral law. And if there's a moral law, then there's a moral law giver. The law doesn't come from us, the law exists. We we we, we recognize that the the, the the that the principle thou shalt not kill transcends us. We didn't just we didn't just decide, hey, that's bad. We just we just know it is. And why do we know that? Because it's a moral law. Why is there a moral law? Because there's a moral lawgiver. And if there's a moral lawgiver, there's a God. That's who our moral lawgiver is. And so all and all these implications are pretty clear to the people who want the monuments taken down which is why they want them taken down. All right? But again, is our country going to collapse? Is Christianity going to fail because we can't hang a monument in a secular courthouse? No, it's not. Uh, But acknowledging the rightness of God's law is not the same thing as dragging people back into the Old Covenant. That's never what the issue has been about. So... I come back to this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Are we a Christian nation? Why are we concerned? Why are we as Christians concerned about that question? Because we want to see our nation blessed. I do anyway, don't you? We want... As believers, number one, well, not number one, but the first thing that pops into my mind is, I want to continue to be able to do this without threat of anybody from the state coming in and kicking our doors down, shutting us down, jailing us, or whatever. I want to be able to speak boldly everything that's in this book without fear of being arrested or shut down or anything like that. Uh, And I... I also would like to see the church, not just this church, but the church, uh, regain some of its moral standing and its strength in the marketplace. It used to be, uh, for instance, that ministers were widely respected as moral agents, as, as uh, authority figures. Uh, and anymore, you know, if you've, if you've got uh, a, a minister that appears as a guest or a panelist on some news program, they're, they're not taken seriously. Uh, and, and, and part of that is because high-profile ministers have sort of dragged the, the, the idea of ministry down in the public eye, and that's too bad. But we want to see Christianity publicly embraced. We still like to think of America as a Christian nation, but how many of you will acknowledge that we are less of a Christian nation than we were 200 years ago? less of a Christian nation than we were 100 years ago, certainly, and even less than a Christian nation than we were 50, 30 years ago. We are moving the same direction as Europe, which is uh, it's a post-Christian continent. And... Uh, it's interesting. You see what's happening over there. Not just, I'm not talking about just the geography. It's a post Christian society. It's very hard ground for missionaries. You know, missionaries uh, in different countries, it might be difficult for people like Neil and Danette, for instance, to go where they go because the, the geography is so harsh, because the, the resources are so uh, slim. Uh, but they do find. Uh, fertile ground for the word of God that they sow. People are, are receptive. I remember uh, Felusha years ago talking about his time in Nigeria, and there were a lot of people who were into supernatural things there, he said. And he said, if you, you, if you were uh, the Christians on, on campus, or he got saved, he received Christ at, uh, when he went to the university. He said the Christians are the boldest, loudest. They'll take every opportunity to preach the gospel. If the professor's two, two minutes late walking in to start class, a Christian will go up and take the microphone and start preaching the gospel. And he says and it's so easy to get somebody saved because they all believe in the supernatural. All you have to do is demonstrate and preach that your God is more powerful than the demon they've been worshiping. But it's hard ground in this post-enlightenment, post-Christian uh, continent in Europe because they've outgrown the idea of the supernatural, period. They're, they're beyond all that. That's childish stuff. And so they don't believe. And what's happening as a result, religiously speaking, what's flourishing over there now? Islam. They have k- essentially kicked Christ out of the public square, and nature abhors a vacuum, and Islam has rushed in to fill that void, to fill that vacuum, and it's flourishing, and it's growing, and becoming, uh, in many ways, a dangerous presence there. That's a separate, separate issue. We love our nation. We, so if we love our nation... So we, we ought to be, our, our prayers for this nation and our desire to see us as a more boldly and openly Christian nation should not be so that things are easier for us. It should be because we love our nation and want to see our nation blessed. So what should we do? What do we do? Uh, we do it on Monday nights. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders, right? We pray for uh, the economy. We pray for the, uh, the trendsetters, the influencers, Right, the people who do fashion these things, uh, and and mold the American psyche, as it were, the Zeitgeist. We pray for churches across this land, not just ours, that they would be uh, that the, the pulpits would be uh, there. There would be men and women in these pulpits who are preaching truth boldly, preaching the gospel, not just social justice. We want God to protect us, and we want God to preserve this nation. We want this nation to be blessed. And let's face it, we want this nation to be blessed because this is the nation we live in, and we want to be blessed. Right? But, a couple things. Number one is this, and we talked about this recently. And we're not going to talk about it long tonight. We've 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 mentioned this several times, but it's one of the more famous verses on this subject in First Chronicles or sorry, Second Chronicles chapter seven. In verse fourteen says, "If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land." Now, that's a pretty important promise because it doesn't say if the whole land will turn and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. But if my people will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, he'll hear from heaven and heal their land. Not just us, right? So that's, that's pretty important. But more importantly, I think, and more excitingly, is... 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1, so we get the right context of what I really want you to see. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now this verse, verse 8 there, when it says uh, they stumbled over the rock and they were appointed to this, People will take this as a defense for predestination. The ones who reject the stone, who reject the cornerstone, reject them because God in his, in the counsel of his will, his inscrutable will, has simply foreordained that these people would reject him and walk in disobedience. That's not what that verse is saying. He's talking about that those who have chosen disobedience, it's preordained that they would stumble. In other words, if you are going to ignore God, you are going to reap uh, the crop that disobedience produces. If you're going to sow disobedience, this is what you're going to reap. It's going to be stumbling. It's going to be a rock of offense. You're going to bang your head on this thing. Okay. If you decide to obey, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be beautiful. Uh, But if you reject this, This is the stone that God set as the cornerstone. And you know what the cornerstone was, right? This was the stone uh, that they, 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 they carved this, they measure it, they set it up perfectly. They chiseled this thing to some exact dimensions. And as they build this foundation, every stone is measured against the cornerstone. So you make their next stone, and it's identical to the cornerstone. The next one... You don't measure off the one you just built. You go back to the cornerstone. So everything uses the original stone as the model. And people who reject this, they reject it because why would I want to be like Jesus? Why do I want to be like you? I am my own person. And so the cornerstone becomes a rock of offense. And when it's saying there that they were appointed to this, it simply means that the, the results of their disobedience... Those results are their appointment. That's, what they, that's what's been preordained, not the disobedience itself. Now, the important part. Verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I hope that is highlighted in your Bible. It's a super important New Testament verse, and it's beautiful because it very much reflects God's choosing of Old Testament Israel. You know, one of the interesting things about Israel is here was a people that had laws and government and people uh, and had national identity before they had a land. He chose them as a people. He chose them as a person. You know, while the whole nation was still in Abraham, he chose them. And they grew into the people that he called, grew into this family, this great family, and then this nation. But it was their identity as God's people that made them a nation, not their inhabiting of the land that made them a nation. Okay? It's important because this is what Peter's saying. When he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a nation. Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. This is our identity. We are a, and when people talk about uh, American exceptionalism, or nationalism, okay? That our this this is what makes us we are, we are exceptional because we are American. We are an exceptional nation of believers. This is our true national ident- identity. This is our true allegiance needs to be to the church, Christ's church, Christ himself. This is who we are as a nation. A chosen generation, chosen people. A holy nation. And what is our purpose as a nation? That we would proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We once were not a people, but we now are a people. The people of God who have not, had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. And then, uh, the outworking of that, verse 11. Beloved... I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's one of my favorite sermons to preach. I don't know how long it's been since I preached it. I preach it at least once a year. I'm not going to preach it tonight, except to say that when he's talking about this, of course, this is a very, very powerful evangelism verse when it talks about lifestyle evangelism. You want to see your friends, your neighbors, the world saved. And so you can work on your preaching, you can work on your scripture memorization, but you've got to live a certain way before the world. They've got to be able to observe your good works, your good, your good living. And it's that, that's our most powerful apologetic. thats them seeing us living the way we are supposed to live that's going to get their attention and cause them to choose Christ when they come face to face with that truth, when it's finally presented to them. But, again, who's he talk- he's talking about that, that, that we should all act in a way. I don't like the, the idea that we all need to be exactly the same. I believe in diversity of personality and diversity of gifts and all the, you know, it, it's, you can become all things to all people that we might, by all means, win some. It's better if just different people do the job. Some people are going to make connections better than other people. It's not that we all have to adopt the same personality, but there ought to be certain traits that mark us all as believers. Right? The things that are important to us. There, there, there ought to be unity about the things that, that, uh, that are our priorities. And certain things ought to mark us, like our language. Right? Right? Uh, And we could do a whole list of things on there, but that's again, that's more uh, the sermon that belongs to those two verses, and I kind of wanted to bring it back to this idea uh, expressed here and expressed back in Psalm 33 that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We don't need to worry too much. We can pray about it, and we should, but if we want to be a blessed nation, we don't have to worry about, is America blessed by God? I want America blessed for America's sake. But my number one national allegiance is to this new nation, this chosen people, right? This new, this generation, and with this generation he means it generated a new new race, right? We've all been born again into the kingdom of God. A royal priesthood and a holy nation. This is the nation whose God is the Lord. And even if, and I pray it doesn't, but even if this country continues to spiral downward, even if this country becomes more bold in its rejection of gospel truth, we're still blessed because our God is the Lord. This royal priesthood, this holy nation is blessed. Our blessedness, our protection, our provision, our healing, our salvation does not, is not tied directly to the decisions made in Washington, D.C., but rather to the decisions made in our prayer closets, in our homes, and in our churches. We can be blessed right in the midst of it, just as... The best parallel to that is when Judah was in captivity in Babylon. They were surrounded by their enemies. They were in enemy territory, and right there in the midst of it, they were blessed, they were provided for, they were protected, even against a national plot to exterminate them. That's what the book of Esther is about. God will do that for us. I expect him to do that for us. I'm not worried about me. I'm not worried about you. I'm not worried. My concern when I pray is for the nation. I want to see this nation preserved because this nation, the United States of America, has done more to spread the gospel and provide the gospel to the rest of the world than any nation in history. That's simply a fact. And I believe God has preserved us through some nasty stuff just because of that history. But we cannot just go on uh, coasting on that forever. So I want to see America continue to take a leadership role in that. Meanwhile, we, the church, absolutely are going to do that, right? We're going to continue to live the gospel. We're going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to continue to fund the gospel as we continue to be the church. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ.